Were you in a position to observe Colonel Childers when everyone was evacuated? Yes, I was. What was the last thing you saw him do? He went to the flagpole. Then what did he do? He took down the American flag. Was he personally under heavy fire at that time? Yes, sir. No more questions. Welcome to The Secret Cinema, the podcast where we overanalyze the undervalued films of yesteryear. My name is Paolo Carone, and I host this podcast along with my co-host, Carrie Chafee. In this episode, we're going to discuss Rules of Engagement, a William Friedkin film from the year 2000 that's sort of a political courtroom war drama thriller. We're going to be rejoined by our friend Wade, and all three of us are going to get political because, well, this is a political film. It's going to happen. Now, here's Carrie with a quick plot summary. Colonel Terry Childers is in hot water. While on a recovery mission in Yemen, he ordered his troops to shoot into a civilian crowd, causing dozens of fatalities. Even with his years of service and clean military record, Childers finds himself facing federal charges and a dishonorable discharge. With his back against the wall, Childers recruits his friend, Hayes Hodges, a fellow colonel and retired lawyer, to represent him. During the trial, both Childers and Hodges have to face the facts and their past. So our first clip is from the trial of Terry Childers. Childers is played by Samuel L. Jackson, and the prosecutor is played by Guy Pierce. You'll hear Tommy Lee Jones as Hayes Hodges objecting, and you'll also briefly hear a judge played by Richard McGonagall. He's not famous, uh, it just seemed wrong to say the other three names and not mention his as well, and plus his last name sounds like McGarnacle. Anyway, this clip pretty thoroughly illustrates the case against Childers, and it starts with a discussion of three very important words. Here's that clip. You said waste the motherfuckers, didn't you? No, no, no. You didn't say it? Well, it all happened so fast. You're I... under oath, Colonel. Let me refresh your memory. This is Exhibit Q, a tape recording made aboard the USS Wake Island of all radio communications received that day, including your exact words. Your Honor, with your permission, I would like to play this tape. Well, if you got it on tape, then that's what I said. They were killing my Marines, so yeah, I said it. Waste the motherfuckers. Are these the motherfuckers? Objection. Overruled. Yes. These? Objection. Yes. These? Objection. Overruled. Yes. Are these the motherfuckers that you ordered to be wasted? Your Honor. Major. Yes! Your Honor. The crowd in front of the embassy had no weapons, did they, Colonel? Objection. We found no snipers' weapons either. Yes, they had weapons! You think there's a script for fighting a war without pissing somebody off? Follow the rules and nobody gets hurt? Yes, innocent people probably died. Innocent people always die. But I did not exceed my order. There are rules and Marines are sworn to uphold them. I was not going to stand by and see another Marine die just to live by those fucking rules. Colonel. Sounds like Childers will be guilty, right? Well, in this second clip, we hear the case for Childers. That is to say, we hear National Security Advisor Bill Coble, played by the great Bruce Greenwood, manipulating the ambassador to Yemen, Ben Kingsley, into conspiring against Childers. Q 
Keep in mind that immediately preceding this exchange, the National Security Advisor sees video evidence of Yemenis firing guns at the embassy, which pretty much confirms Childers' side of the story. Here's that clip. I just want to make sure we're on the same page here, off the record. Of course, Bill. Now, you didn't see any weapons in that crowd, did you? Well, there was some shooting, but I, I couldn't be sure exactly where it was coming from. Oh, see, that's going to be a problem. Because we can't get on the stand and waffle about the charges. Waffle, Bill? Well, in your mind, Childers was responsible for this incident, wasn't he? Well, I wasn't exactly there. I'd already evacuated. You have to remember, he saved my life and my family. This all happened after. Does that mean the United States is going to have to take the fall for what he did? I don't understand. The investigating team didn't find any weapons in the crowd. Well, that's because they weren't there until the following day. The Yemeni government cleaned up the scene, but unfortunately, that's not something we can prove. Nor can I testify about it. It all happened afterward. Yeah, but you can testify about Chiller's frame of mind, his behavior, while you were there. He saved my life. Surely this will all come down to what the tape shows. The tape's inconclusive. And now, our discussion of rules of engagement. Okay, so we kind of can't really tiptoe around this one. Uh, we have to dive right into the core issue of this movie, which is the whole plot of Samuel Jackson essentially orders the killing of 83 civilians? Uh, <laughs> yeah, mark. you know what? Yeah. I think more people than that died because when they go to the hospital, they're like, more people are dying every day. And, it, and there's you know, <laughs> yeah. hundreds of people are, are injured. I mean, I suffice it to say it's like several boatloads of people <laughs> being murdered. Boatloads. Or not, well, maybe not murdered, you know. Maybe they died... Anyway, that's the core question that we need to answer, I think. Yeah, and I took I took tons of notes during this movie, and the further in I got, it got harder to focus on the racism issue because of all the other <laughs> problems that kind of come up in the back half. Yeah. But, yeah, really, it boils... I think what really the problem the movie boils down to is that the movie is trying to make a pro-military argument where essentially, like, that... The government can't really understand the military, and it's just politics when they try to control and the military knows best, which I think that's a stupid point. But it's at least a point that could be argued if you didn't distract from it by having a, a country almost anonymously murdered <laughs> in some way, and then just kind of fly out of that area and then have it as like a background for the remainder of the action. There, I think there are like there are several like facets in the way the movie rationalizes this violence. Yeah, I think initially before before the court scene, um, everything's kind of being the, the the ground is being set or whatever. It's like first it's just the racism that's kind of like the way the way that Yemen is portrayed in general. Yeah, it's basically like. I mean, I don't, what, what can you say? It's like typical Hollywood yeah, exoticization. What's yeah. the significance you know? of it being Yemen? It really could have been... No, it could literally be anywhere, yeah. and that's yeah. kind of an issue. Yeah. Right? It's like, first of all, the protesters have no context for any of their actions. Yeah. Right? They're just like anonymous protesters, the... Um, the national security advisor says, yeah. is this, this is another protest? Oh, yeah, regular, regular protest. 
I wrote down, <laughs> see you next week at the protest. <laughs> it can happen every week. <laughs> like, it's just this common occurrence. Blah, 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 let the people protest. But then once they set up that, like, it was jihad, or it was some sort of terrorist attack, which they, like, go out of their way to be like, yes, it definitely was a terrorist attack. Right. Terrorism, that's, like, the crazy U.S. mentality that terrorism doesn't have a reason is that responding to something it's just it's, it's just empty terrorism and i'm, I'm not in, endorsing terrorism i'm just at least acknowledging that usually uh, there's a motive there's like some little right. something happened and it's an overblown response but it key word is that it's a response and um and if we're going to stick to that definition of terrorism as an overblown response then Pretty much one of the movies on definition of Daniel Jackson is the terrorist. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. And wow, I like that you flipped it there. Yeah, I, I didn't even break that down. And so yeah, it just like I, the the movie all has an issue where who are we supposed to sympathize with? Because it seems like they want us to sympathize with the the Yemenese people. For a while. For yeah. a while, but they do nothing to develop the people or make them real, or except for that little girl. That one-legged little girl. Well, I mean, they don't really make her real. They make her, like, a symbol. Yeah. A symbol, yeah. Uh, 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 basically, a, a American imperialism and, like, the violence it brought. Yeah. Like, yeah. right? Initially, that's what she kind of... Yeah, and, and during the initial attack, when they're, shoot, when they're shooting everybody, William Friedkin does at least... Give us um, shots of people dying horribly. Not like not like typical Hollywood violence where they take like one one or two bullets and then fall down. They're like bleeding out the mouth, and there's like a baby <laughs> crying over his dead mother. It's like oh, pretty, yeah. pretty clear cut well, imagery. In, yeah. in the hospital scene, there's a woman who who is like laying in the bed, and her infant child is dead next to her. Yeah, and there's that. I mean, there's that great moment where. Tommy Lee Jones is talking to that little girl, and she says killer in her native language at Tommy Lee Jones, and he goes, oh, is that your name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they call me killer. Killer. <laughs> <laughs> but just, like, they do, they do, at some points, try to do a little bit to kind of do lip service to the idea that the enemies are people, they just never actually make them people. They're like, oh, good enough. That's that's enough of a counter to balance this out. It's it's a really subtle yeah. kind of like more contemporary racism in which like yeah. the people who are being depicted it's not that they're being really depicted negatively. It's not that they're not really they're not really being depicted at all. Yeah. yeah. They're just kind of bodies. Well it's, it goes back to the point of it could have been any country. Right. It, it doesn't matter that it's Yemen. It could have been, you know Mor well, didn't they shoot it actually in Morocco? So. Yeah, yeah. Why was it, yeah, why couldn't it have been Morocco? Like, I guess Morocco's pretty peaceful. Or at least Morocco was like, yeah, sure, trash Yemen. I don't... <laughs> 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 More from Morocco. Oh, Emily, Emily and I were actually having a really good discussion before uh, the movie about... Well, this, I, I feel like this is a really, really typical pre-9-11 movie mm -hmm. in a lot of ways in in terms of not just how films were made but also american attitudes and the casual indifference to other countries that was still allowed like i mean it's a very 
typical 80s thing to have like Russians or whatever just be like generic yeah. enemy. And that's like, and it continues in the 2000s. And um, talking about it, Zoolander came up. And do you guys remember what the key plot is in Zoolander? It's an American assassinating the Prime Minister of Malaysia. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And do you remember, you remember how, when that was the plot in the interview, uh, the Seth Rogen movie in North Korea, it's, it was offensive. It was offensive. Even still with him being a dictator, it's offensive because it's America just being indifferent to other countries. But it's being, but okay, the interview is very intentionally offensive. Yeah. yeah right? It's yeah. like, it's overblown. It's like being ridiculous. But Zoolander in the pre 9-11 way, it's like thoughtless. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's because very it, thoughtless. at least because Zo- in Zoolander's remaking Manchurian Candidate, but Manchurian Candidate is white people killing other, other white, white people. people. It neutralizes it. But, but um, Zoolander, is that there's that way in which... And Manchurian Canada also has that military thing where the guy is kind of brainwashed or... Yeah, but even still, like, yeah. it's not really making it about the other countries. Even the guy that, that yeah. brainwashes him who's from another country does it for the right. United States. Yeah. But the point is just that Zoolander kind of ties into what I'm saying about your rules and engagement, or the racism isn't... Um, it's subtle in that way that any country could be any country. Right. It could it be the prime matter. minister of any country that's yeah. been assassinated. Well, yeah. any country that has like vast uh, sweatshops, yeah, you know, within its borders, <laughs> which includes many, many countries. Many countries, <laughs> yes. Real. Well, yeah, I looked it up in it, and this movie came out in April two thousand. Do you think this movie would have been made after nine eleven? It could have been, but it would have been. Very different. Ooh, way yeah. different. Yeah. 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 It, there's so much in this that inherently think... evokes post 9 11 America and dilemmas that we've come up with, but in such an accidental way that it doesn't really, it's not interesting in that way. It's just like you, you hear the way people are talking about things and the way in which we're talking about casualties in war zones and things like that. But, um, I lost my job. Sorry. <laughs> Someone else. <laughs> so, yeah. So, first the movie, I guess, like, it it, it, it exonerates Samuel Jackson's actions. Yes. First through kind of the subtle racism that's kind of mostly at the beginning of the movie. And the second part of that is basically focusing on military ethos and what is and is not appropriate in a battleground. And specifically, like, the importance of valor yeah. under fire and valor in the face of death. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, and the movie's called Rules of Engagement, right? And so it's, like, really specifying that. And, it, I, and this came up a lot where I just realized I don't know anything about the military, but is are the rules of engagement created by the military, or is that something the government placed on the military? I think that's, like, more of an internal United States military code. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. At least that's the way it's portrayed I in believe this you. movie. <laughs> yeah, because it seems like the main problem with the the courtroom back half is that they're really trying to play up this idea of the government just turning against the military, and it's like all a PR thing. They get the video. They they find they see the videotape that shows in the movie for sure that the crowd had weapons and they intentionally burn it, right. which I mean, like <laughs> the, the, I, I can't figure out a way, a, a way in which that makes sense that not just being like, no, look, they, it was, it was an attack. And so, like, well, yeah. And the NSA advisor is the one who destroys the tape, but don't you think that's a little above his pay grade? 
Don't you think that the president would have probably been the one to make that call? Uh, that's, that's kind of a weird <laughs> argument. <laughs> he throws it in a fireplace. It's not like they have to get the president to throw it in a fireplace. Yeah, <laughs> the that's president. True. But they're setting up the we government. We did for a while think that but, the NSA advisor was the president. Yeah, it's very <laughs> unclear, at least at the beginning. But Bruce, wasn't paying Bruce, Green, Bruce Greenwood definitely looks like a president. He does. Oh, yeah. He'd be a great president. In a movie. He actually was the president in National Treasure 2. Ooh. Really? <laughs> yeah. I saw both those movies in theaters. <laughs> Let's not get sidetracked. I think I did too. So. But but still, the movie goes makes the goes through the effort of making the national security advisor essentially the primary antagonist mm. in a way, and then also has the ambassador uh, to Yemen. Uh, an antagonist and his wife also an antagonist by all of them being like well there the were a lot of antagonists the military means nothing to me like what about my happiness <laughs> and first of all does i don't know again i don't know anything about the military but as far as i'm aware the government created the military yeah. and it's in the government's best interest to work with the military and it is not constantly just blaming everything that goes wrong in the military. I feel like half of the problems that the United States is currently in is because of endorsing and trusting its military too much to just solve problems instead of using diplomacy. Uh, and, and so, I don't know. But I just, hello, diplomacy is bullshit. Diplomacy is bullshit. <laughs> Going to Academy Award winner Ben Kingsley. <laughs> oh, so it just seems like, it seems like the whole movie at times exists in like a fantasy world and yet it's so grounded in boring detail about like oh, military God. life and courtroom drama and like, the rules of engagement it really needed some sort of symbolic level to work at all if it's going to try to do the really risky and iffy points absolutely i mean like first yes this movie could have taken like 50 million points from a few good men <laughs> yeah. which is like the military courtroom drama or just courtroom drama period to end all courtroom dramas <laughs> yeah this one is just like the most like boring yeah like textbook like, so stiff the last half of the movie is just like People are arguing for their lives, just like placidly. <laughs> Samuel Jackson. Too bad because there's a lot of great actors in the there, there. in the in the courtroom. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very baffling. It's like the courtroom is like the actor's realm. Oh, yeah. movies, right. If the, the act, it's like go ahead, actors, like make this scene work because God knows we're doing nothing else here with the camera, <laughs> right? Well, you're up here talking, now the other person's talking, etc. Et but there's like that really baffling commitment to verisimilitude that, um, like, A Few Good Men or Twelve Angry Men doesn't have. Oh, yeah, they throw it out the window. Where and that's what makes those work is because what's interesting about the trial is the drama, and so you, in a, in a courtroom movie, you play up the way people talk to emphasize the drama, and this movie's like, no, we gotta do it real, we gotta play this real, <laughs> this is how it would really go, and this is the way they talk, because it does seem like uh, William Friedkin's trying to make it interesting, it's shot well, the whole movie is shot incredibly yeah, well. But when I mean, and, but when people are talking, you just don't care. And I, sorry to one more thing to tack onto that. I kind of realized by that point, especially because we've all seen this movie before. By the time you get to the courtroom scene, you know what you think. There's no like yeah. right. third option that's being argued. Right. That's another reason why it's so boring. Yeah. Because you you've 
if you are a member of the audience by then, you've kind of made up your mind whether you think he's guilty or not. Yeah. And and the movie is pretty uh, obvious about how it feels about who sh- who's guilty. We need to talk about that more. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. But I want to I want to touch back on the point of the antagonists and the fact that none of the antagonists in the movie are really in the courtroom. Besides, right. Because like even. Guy Pierce, when Guy Pierce is introduced as the prosecuting lawyer, yeah. he says, like, one of his first lines is, uh, I am going to try this case based on the evidence. I'm not going to, pro- you know, crucify this guy just because we need someone to crucify. So right. you're like, okay, so he's not a villain. Right. So no, who's the villain? It's really weird. The, the movie makes a point of making the prosecutor, which is, in these kinds of movies, is always the villain. Yeah. Right? Not be the villain. Yeah. yeah. He's just like, I'm, like, I'm doing my job. I wonder if Guy Pierce was like, I'll take this role, but I can't be the bad guy. <laughs> right. I don't want to be typecast as the bad guy. Not because maybe. maybe he, maybe this was right after he made Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> <laughs> he was really. Preempting he being was like really the bad guy bad in guy. that movie. Yeah. Well, good on you, Guy. Good career move. Well, and occasionally, too, the movie makes good points on accident and, like, raises good satirical or, like, symbolic parallels on accident, and I feel like nobody realized it was there or they didn't realize... They're too focused on one thing to see the other things. Like, at one point when, um... I think Guy Pearce says, what would happen if a Yemeni killed 83 Man, Americans? I wrote down that exact yeah. same thing. And it's like, yeah, that's a good point that really yeah. should be we, addressed we would, here. We would murder him immediately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. And then we also kind of mentioned in like one of the scenes where I was trying to kind of defend the movie's depiction a little bit. When Tommy Lee Jones goes to Yemen and the crowd comes up and starts yelling at him, they're just like pointing and yelling. And so he like, they're like, haven't you done enough for to our country? And he, oh, yeah, so he escapes right. in the crowd and runs on alley, and the crowd kind of just like stands and keeps pointing and then walks away. Like, <laughs> Go back to that. They're, like, they're not even that angry after Americans have murdered people. They're like still pretty reasonable <laughs> and grounded, whereas, like, yeah. But is that the director trying to play up the fact that they had weapons at the protests? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. That's this movie yeah. so muddled in that respect. Yeah, like, yeah, because I really, the first time I watched this movie, it was, I pretty much watched it from the point of view of, man, I cannot wait to see how this ends, because how are they going to pull, how are they going to defend Samuel L. Jackson? It's, he's undefendable in this movie. And watching, going through now, yeah, it really, the first half of the movie is really strong and keeps some good ambiguity in there, and then the, and it just has the racist problems, and then the back half falls apart because they're not willing to take a controversial stance like a controversial stance, like the military can do wrong, or, <laughs> <laughs> or wow, real controversial, yeah. <laughs> or that the government is are they are human beings? They are just uh, absent-minded publicity machines who will push <laughs> off blame on anybody. Um, it's not willing to do anything like that, and so the whole thing—it's just kind of you're just you're sitting through stuff that you've already heard until it gets to just a really anticlimactic non-ending. And, yeah, it doesn't really, it like, you do a lot of work in the first half, and they do not reward you with anything substantial in the back half. Well, yeah, it's just, the movie 
doesn't really critique like the old the, the ideas it's putting forth, right? Yeah. Like there should be a criticism of actions under fire, the actions that Samuel L. Jackson has taken. Yeah. Like there should like that those actions deserve an enormous amount of criticism, which the movie withholds entirely, basically. And by withholding, basically gives assent to like, well, when you're in a war zone, you know, shit happens. You kill people. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the screen. I wrote. I wrote down that the screenwriter seems to be arguing that someone who is brave enough to fight for our country deserves some level of amnesty for their actions. Like the ultimate level of amnesty. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he murders innocent people, and they're like, "All right, we'll let you go this time," you know. Well, and there's and they they kind of show because they the movie does claim. That yes, in fact, there were people with guns, and so was there. Who cleaned up all the guns? Yeah, <laughs> that's a, a glaring plot. Because yeah, if, that it definitely means that at some point before someone cleaned up all the bodies, before all those pictures were taken of the bodies that they show in the court and throughout the whole movie, someone came in and picked up all the guns. And so then they were never seen again. Unbeknownst to like, everyone. Within even the Yemeni yeah. government, right? Yeah, like, they, because, I mean, the movie doesn't portray the Yemeni government as lying. They portray the U.S. Go- the U.S. government as lying, right. and the Yemeni government just basically, apparently, doesn't care about this this, movie would have, this movie would have been so much better if they had just left it completely unclear whether Samuel Jackson was guilty or not guilty, but at the same time, if they had done that, and still at the end, Samuel L. Jackson had gotten off... I think I would have been pissed off. Yeah. It's, it's, there's like, yeah. So I don't, I don't know how to make right. this movie uh, a movie I would agree with. I think ambiguity, what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. There's something it's a far more interesting movie within this movie. Yeah. It's like waiting to get out. And I know we talked about some certain scenes have been added to reduce that ambiguity, which yeah. I think really hurt the movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. But there's also just like, Samuel L. Jackson's character, and let's be frank, every character that Samuel L. Jackson plays, there's like a certain <laughs> level of menace yeah. to him because he's such like a, such a physical presence. Yeah. Within whenever he's on the screen, and so the movie could have really enhanced that, like yeah. the danger that well, is within even, this man. Even his tagline in this movie is is pretty menacing. <laughs> the, the, the line that he says right before he orders face like, the motherfuckers <laughs> yeah yeah I mean that's enough yeah you know yeah um, and so the movie could have really made it ambiguous whether there were guns in the crowd whether there was fire coming from the crowd really enhanced like the kind of subtle not even, maybe not even subtle menace yeah of this like longtime you know military man character you could have had something, like, really kind of perverse yeah. in the movie. Instead, you have this thing that basically says, like, hey, you're a-okay, you know, it's okay. Well, yeah, and then um, the, the, there are a lot of things in the courtroom that they don't leave ambiguous, which I think would have been good. Like, Blair Underwood's, all of his testimony, Ben Kingsley flip-flopping. Right. Yeah, I, I do think that ambiguity would have helped make this a better movie, but... I still don't know how the ending would have tied in. Yeah, it needs a whole, an entirely different third act. Right. And I, uh, one of the things I was thinking, because... I think the only way... Okay, and this is just off the cuff, but I think that uh, a good new third act would be that uh, Samuel Jackson gets assassinated. What? <laughs> what? I'm just throwing it out there. Because then, then you're like, oh man, 
rules of engagement, too. <laughs> <laughs> and Tommy Lee's like, I guess uh, that trial's over. <laughs> Lower sunglasses. <laughs> back, back to fly fishing. Well, and this movie also does a really good job of depicting flaws within the American uh, system. So it, it depicts governmental flaws, military flaws, but then also uh, judicial flaws. Like the whole thing with Ben Kingsley flip-flopping on his testimony mm. and, you know, the fact that, you know, Samuel Jackson killed all those people and he's, they're still like, we're, you're innocent. <laughs> yeah, this, this movie has the strangest notion of morality and ethics that I can think of in a movie that's so explicitly tied to the country it's about. Like, because yeah. usually if they're going to do something like that, they'll make it, like, a crime movie, and they won't even specify what state it's set in. Just that, like, oh, like, you kind of revel in the crime, but you're like, oh, this is, I would never do this in real life. But this movie has, well, not, we mentioned Ann Archer, even though a man saved her life, supposedly, she won't testify in his defense. For no reason. Excuse me, you want me to throw away my marriage in a month? But your marriage is, you're married to a guy who won't defend someone who saved his life. Yeah, he's, and, a, he's a pussy. Yeah, and you're he's like, I, pussy. I, I, I need, I have to defend him over that. And then Blair Underwood, they point out in the trial that, yes, if he thought the order was wrong, he could have denied it, and he didn't. He's like, because he told me to do it, and that's the military. I'm a robot! <laughs> and they're like, yes, yes, you're right. <laughs> Correct. And, uh, yeah, and just, there's so many little, and then, like, nobody in this movie has, like, the ability to think of things in the bigger picture at all. Other, The biggest picture thing that happens is, like, Yemen is going to be furious at us, right. and even yeah. that is approached as if it's, like, a crazy well, you, thing to be concerned well, about. Well, and they don't show it at all. They don't show Yemen being upset at no. all, except that when he goes to Yemen and that crowd's like, hey, you, haven't you done enough to my country? Yeah. Also, I just realized that the reason we thought Bruce Greenwood was the president is because immediately after uh, Samuel Jackson says, mission complete, they cut to him being like, this is an outrage. I've got people all over me about this Yemen disaster. And, right. And yeah. so he's reacting like he is the president. Like, yeah. like everyone's after him. He's Nobody also like... gives a shit what he thinks. <laughs> the, I mean, the president would be the one who has to respond to it. Right. He's also in kind of like an Oval Office-ish <laughs> yeah. <you know, laughs> location. Yeah. So it's like, a little whatever. ambiguous. Anyway. Uh, do you guys know what the tagline for this movie was? No. A hero should never have to stand alone. Oh, yeah, that really, that really speaks to what this movie, this movie feels. <laughs> Damn. So that that is implying that Samuel Jackson is a hero. I never felt that way. It's just the moral proportions. They introduce him in the movie by having him shoot that guy in the head. Yeah. So, again, like, the, the movie, if it's trying to get you to sympathize with Samuel Jackson and be on his side, does a terrible job at doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's another, something we should talk about further, is that basically, you know, the movie treats Samuel Jackson as a hero and doesn't really question his actions at all. Yeah. Right? In the eyes of this movie, Samuel Jackson is a 
you know, a hero, a decorated war officer, officer, he, like, it deserves all these accolades, and his actions are entirely justified. <laughs> That's partially because, like, this is a Hollywood movie, and you automatically side with the protagonist in the movie, yeah. right? And I think the movie, like, it, it exploits that really to, like, a really it. subversive, a really <laughs> disturbing extent. Yeah. yeah. The extent where, like, you are not encouraged to question his actions at all, right? Right. Right? It's just like, he's the protagonist, so, you know, you gotta <laughs> side with him. And sometimes that's used to, like, really great effect in movies, right? Or in TV, like, like Breaking Bad. Yeah. That would be an obvious example. Yeah. In which, like, well, you know, there's still the idiots who watch Breaking Bad and are like, Walter Wright, blow stuff up, he's real cool, you know? <laughs> he's my hero! When he's actually, like, Walter White is like this horrible demon of a human by yeah. the end of this, you know, the series. And that's really what we should be thinking of Samuel L. Jackson, but because he's the protagonist, we kind of, like, let his actions kind of float over, or at least the judgment of his actions have float over our heads. But this movie is a lot like if... I'm Breaking Bad if the whole time uh, Skyler was, like, giving him cancer. Like, that's a kind <laughs> of the way in which it plays, where you're like, but Go on. who is really, like... <laughs> so who, okay, yeah, let's continue. <laughs> just, just because, like, okay, thinking of the parallel of, I guess in my metaphor, Skyler is the government, and, uh, <laughs> but still, just, like... And the government gives you cancer. It just, <laughs> my point is that it confuses the point so much that... You, you do feel obliged to think of him as the protagonist, but it constantly is just, like, trying to throw other elements in to be like, but this is what's really happening. But you're like, but it doesn't change what he's doing. Right. Even if even if Skyler was giving Walt cancer on Breaking Bad, he still chose to do the bad things he did. It does just because other people are evil doesn't cancel out other evil. <laughs> like what? I, I don't live in that world. I don't. My metaphor is terrible. I was gonna say I don't know how clean that metaphor is. <laughs> <laughs> more confused yeah. than that. <laughs> but I get what you're saying. Yeah. Like completely. Okay, right. Good. Right. Like, in Breaking Bad, like the people who defend Walter would point to these other things. Right. He's got cancer. Uh, he's a destitute teacher. He's trying to provide for his family. Blah 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 yeah. blah. Even all those things do not justify him being a lying, murderous, greedy asshole. Yeah. Which is what he is by the end of the movie. Vice versa with rules of engagement. Um, yes, he was under fire. Yes, three of his soldiers were killed. Yes, he was trying to defend American lives. That does not give him permission to murder 83 people. Yeah. yeah. And they even, again, in, in the movie, goes to the trouble of being like, he didn't fire a warning shot. And you're like, yeah, he didn't fire a warning <laughs> shot. It's like, oh, yeah. And also, he didn't even absolutely. shoot at the people yeah. he knew were shooting at him. Yeah. Well, like, and they, they go out of their right. way to show that there's people shooting at them on the roofs. So why wouldn't he just shoot at the people on the roof? Well, and this, this drove me crazy that they the the reason no one else but him can see that people are shooting from the ground is because they're pinned down by snipers and when he says waste the motherfuckers the first thing people do is stand, stand up, up and yeah. pull side of the snipers and shoot down <laughs> and yeah okay and also i mean just even on the level of they're the military if they're going to just shoot at a crowd do like a, a, an initial layer of suppressive fire and stop. If you have to yeah. kill people, yeah, kill yeah. less people. Samuel <laughs> Jackson had to like kick a guy twice to get him to stop shooting in yeah. the crowd. Like, hey, stop! 
No, I mean it. Stop. Stop. <laughs> well, that's another, like, weird thing. That weird, like, added bit is, like, another way the movie kind of justifies him. Like, his actions or whatever. He's like, oh, yeah, waste some motherfuckers. Hey, don't waste them that much. Yeah. You know? hey, <laughs> I take it back. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. There are so many subtle things that William Friedkin does with the screenplay where I think that's why it's so confusing and muddled is because... I, I really think the screenplay is, is trying to be very straightforward yeah. about how it feels. But hit, William Friedkin's direct, directing makes you go, what? Huh? Well, who? I think, okay, and I, I tried to explain this in the movie, but I was talking too much, so I'll get into it now. Uh, <laughs> I think a big thing with every William Friedkin movie is William, he loves to play up and we're on the first name basis now, William. Yes. Uh, me and Bill. He, me and Bill. Uh, <laughs> Billy Friedkin. Billy Boy really likes <laughs> to play, uh, turn everything he directs into ambiguity. And that's like a big reason why Cruising was so controversial is because he really <laughs> leans into the ambiguity I love of it. Me too. And uh, like, <laughs> Cruising is like, it is offensive at times, but yeah, I feel yeah. like at the same time, it works better because he wrote it, and so he knows what his point is that he's trying to get across. And when the people are killed in that movie, you feel bad for them. You feel like, like, <laughs> yes. oh man, you. He goes out of his way to make it horrible, not in like a torture porn way, but in like, oh, a human being is dying right now. <laughs> yeah, and life has been lost. Yeah, and William Friedkin is really good. Like, to live and die in L.A. really plays up this idea of everyone in the world is corrupt and good people will eventually be turned corrupt by just living in that world and seeing it for what it is and such a cynical point of view it's an ex it's extremely cynical yeah. point of view and if you see stuff like bug and killer joe it's not as literal because he didn't write it but it's still kind of there in just the general milieu mm -hmm. and the atmosphere of like everybody is scum yeah. everybody People like Michael, Michael Shannon in Bug, he's like, at first you meet him, he's like, wow, he's really nice. And by the end, he's like pulling his teeth out and uh, cutting himself yeah. and shit. Uh. And uh, like, yeah, even good people have like that horrible side to them. Secret and side. so I think William Friedkin is trying to do that. And he's trying to do it in a movie that has very clear, like, the military is good. The government should not interfere with the military. Uh, also, yeah, uh, that's like, <laughs> and he's like, and William Friedkin's like, but but also the military just can't be trusted. And also the government can't, really can't be trusted. Yeah, and yeah. also, um, nobody's good. And he never, and because with Samuel L. Jackson, yeah, he is supposed to be the protagonist, but William Friedkin never films him in a heroic way. He never frames shots with him in a way where you, where the, he never has this hero moment. The American flag has more hero moments in this movie <laughs> than he does. Um, and so he kind of more feels like a dead weight tied around Tommy Lee Jones's neck. Yeah. For, especially well, once... And again, they do nothing to Samuel Jackson to make you want to sympathize with him besides stating his military record. They don't show... Like, he has no family, evidently. Right, he, like, He's lives like, on the base. Yeah, he lives on the base. He's got a placard in front of his house that has his name on it <laughs> in, like, big, bold letters. Yeah. Yeah. He... Like I said, he doesn't have any family, and I guess he drinks alone and looks at pictures of himself in his own military uniform. Yeah, there's a, that's that's the one humanizing moment, yeah. right? It's like when Tommy Lee Jones stumbles upon him, like, yeah. kind of distraught. And he says... His whole identity is 
being in the military. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he says they they take away my uniform, they might, might as well shoot me. Right. Yeah. And it's you know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's set up for him. Yeah. yeah. It's all you've done, yeah. But um Kind of blew it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But, um, but that, well, and Guy Pierce describes him as a warrior's warrior. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, like, they say that, that, like, that is an inherently defendable idea. If someone described me as a warrior's warrior, I'd be like, no, no, take it back. They're a warriors, but then he's <laughs> yeah, a you, warrior. You know the, the class of, play. you know the type of people <laughs> that love to fight and attack and kill other people? This is the type of guy that those people look up to. This is essentially what they're saying. <laughs> Got it. But um, in, in going back to Friedkin's other movies, with, with kind of like the idea of he has like a naive character or someone who's like thrown in the middle of of this, I feel like mm, yeah. ideally Tommy Lee Jones is supposed to be. Yeah, that. we haven't talked about Tommy. Boy. Yeah, we really haven't gotten around to him. Um, I think he's supposed to be that like naive figure because they really say he's unexperienced and all this stuff. But the movie doesn't actually have him learn anything or no. change. He doesn't have. No, he, that's he doesn't have. An he arc. Ba- he his arc basically is he wins the case yeah. because he's supposed to be a crappy lawyer. Right, but that's his arc. Yeah, that's it. But they don't show him being a crappy lawyer. Yeah, he's like a really good lawyer. <laughs> yeah, they basically the show his family being like, "You're a crappy lawyer." <laughs> right. What's in that case, you Dumbo? <laughs> don't you know you're a terrible lawyer? <laughs> Go trout fishing. Well, and I think that. You know, where we're supposed to be uh, feeling for Samuel Jackson, we end up feeling for Tommy Lee Jones because we're like, oh, you're such a crappy lawyer. You're you're doing such a good job. Way to go. Right. There's like, that's kind of like an undercurrent. I yeah. Feel like. And all like, when, as he's succeeding in the courtroom, you're thinking like, oh, wow, this is like him. Like rising to the occasion, finally, yeah. right? But it's like the movie never really capitalizes that no. like a, in a satisfying way. Yeah, that arc is like I guess kind of resolved like after the case where he goes and hugs his son and his dad, and they're like, yeah. "You did a real good job. We're so proud of you. You're not a crappy lawyer anymore." <laughs> if it's weird, but that whole scene is like very unHollywood. It's like not very sentimentally shot or anything. It's yeah. just very matter of fact. Like, oh, yep, okay. Obligatory family shot, and even like. Samuel Jackson's exoneration is like very unHollywood. Yeah. Also, now that I'm thinking about it, okay. So again, going back to the fact that we're supposed to be rooting for, or well, I think we're supposed to be rooting for Samuel Jackson after he gets let free, or you know, he, they win the case, he walks away alone. No, <laughs> yes. nobody was cheering for him. Oh so, yeah, they all hate him. Yeah. No. He walks oh. outside. Oh, yeah. right. And he right. sees... Yeah. He sees... Okay. In, in, in the beginning of the movie, there's that guy that's Viet Cong commander, right? Yeah. And yeah. he... he um, Samuel Jackson murders one of his men uh, while they're prisoner to convince him to, like, call off a strike. At the end of the movie, after oh the case, they uh, Samuel Jackson walks outside and that commander is there because he was a witness and he sees Samuel Jackson and he salutes him and Samuel <laughs> Jackson salutes him back and then they walk off. So again, it really is the military that's above everything where like <laughs> like the Viet Cong and the US Marines are like, yeah man, it's just us against the world. Right? Like, it's just like we're military men. We know how it's like. Yeah. Well right? and, and again, yeah. I 
the the fact that they found that Viet Cong general <laughs> yeah. makes no Just, sense. Yeah. It, it would make more sense for them to have it's, found the translator that he had used right. when they were that in Vietnam. That made way more sense. Because, like, how did they find that guy? <laughs> yeah. How did they well, find him? And why in, was he in the United States? Well, he's getting into his car, and weirdly he's getting into the passenger side of his car. <laughs> I <right>. just realized. <laughs> but, so he lives... He lives in the United States. Uh, a Viet... I mean, I may... I, I guess it could happen where a Viet Cong commander after the Vietnam War was like, yeah, no, yeah, why not? But, like, wouldn't you... Okay, let's... Okay. Let's just suspend belief for a sec, second and say, okay, yeah. The Viet Cong general totally makes sense that he lives in the United States. He agrees to testify in this case. But apparently... But wait. Hold on. So, he okay, testifies... Granted. He testifies... And then he doesn't hold a grudge that 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 Samuel Jackson murdered his his, his Colin, radio Colin, yeah. his radio operator. Yeah, He's yeah, like, yeah. "Well, thanks for saving my life. Peace out, dude." This movie kind I feel like the tagline of this movie should have been to make an omelet, you got to crack a couple eggs. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Am I right, guys? But a hero should never have to crack Eggs alone. <laughs> it takes two to make an omelet. <laughs> That's like the buddy cop version of this movie. Um, maybe we could talk about the weird justification for military violence that this movie kind of yeah. supports. And maybe in relation to like other media that do similar things, I think we could like talk about this maybe briefly. Yeah. You know, I'm talking about like things like 24. Yeah. I mean, I... I, Carrie, did you watch 24? I didn't, but I watched Alias. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, okay. All right. <laughs> and, yeah. I, I mean, I think part of that is just because it's a war movie, and people go see war movies because they're shooting. They're shooting and killing. And I think that that's how this movie was uh, uh, marketed. Is that it's a war movie? You want to see it because you want to see America fight to be America. But there's very little of that. Movie. Yeah, there is. The and opening scene. And I think that that is why the movie didn't do better than it did. I mean, it did fine. I looked it up and it it made back its budget, but it didn't uh, succeed more than that. It, it barely it's like made a little bit more. It than its barely budget. made it's a like little a mild more than success. its budget because yeah. the budget was sixty million and Ooh, it really? made yeah, sixty oh million dollars and then. It, I think in the United States it made $61 million. Oh, just, <laughs> just yeah, so And somehow I think this didn't have a big international and I, Yeah, and I, I'm betting that they... I'm seriously betting... I haven't watched the trailer, but I bet they market, marketed this movie as, like, come see a war movie, including oh, yeah. Samuel Jackson Definitely. and Tommy Lee Jones. And then they didn't mention how the last hour is a boring courtroom scene. <laughs> a really, like, boring procedural drama. Yeah. <laughs> Though I really wouldn't be surprised that you mentioned the international. I wouldn't be surprised if this movie's, like, really popular in, like, Russia or China yeah. or North Maybe. Korea. Where you're like, see the American pigs? Just let their, let oh, their people yeah. get away with anything? I would love to hear what, what people in other countries think about this movie. Man, yeah. Because it has such a self sense of entitlement, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. American exceptionalism. Yeah. Yeah, which is just very... Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, and it opens, too, on that scene where they're in Vietnam, and they're going in their separate squads, or I don't know the military lingo. I'm just going to make it up, but squads. 
uh, and one goes into the swamp and the other goes into the forest. And, you know, from there we're supposed to be like, oh, these are my heroes cheering these people on. Great. Well, and at least I do think, too, that Vietnam sequence is kind is weird because, like, when the, when the Yemeni people are getting shot, they show it in normal speed and everything, and it just looked like they, they emphasize the gore, really. But when, during that Vietnam sequence, the Vietnamese soldiers and the American soldiers, when they die, they're shown, their deaths are shown the same way. They're yeah. shown in slow motion very gory, like yeah. that says the blood spraying off of them, and you see Vietnamese, Vietnamese people die first. They're the first people to die in the movie, and they are not the aggressors when they die. You understand implicitly that it's the Vietnam War, Samuel Jackson's squad sees them, starts firing on them, captures them. Yeah. And after that capture, the other group gets ambushed. Yeah. And so... I, they, oh, go ahead. I was just saying, like, it's weird because they do... And considering how the movie ends, they do really try to, like, equalize the Viet Cong and the U.S. Marines. They go through the trouble of trying to put them on the same playing field. Yeah. And uh, at least in that little, little tiny way. Because they're non-Americans. Yeah, but they're not, they don't give them the same, like, level of anonymity as the civilians that die. Yeah. They, like, they, it's, but I think it's because they're military. I think that's why. Yeah. I, That's a good point. Yeah. I kind of wish that, and I know that this isn't really his style, but I kind of wish that William Friedkin has had filmed this as more of a satire. I, yeah, well, actually, I was thinking, yeah, if the movie had been made and Guy Pierce was the main character, and... Guy Pierce was Samuel Jackson? No, Guy Pierce, the oh. prosecutor, was the main character, and it was like, you have to try this guy. It's an open and shut case, and the more he looks into it, the more complicated it gets. Where that would have like, been yes, such he a might more have done this, movie. But it looks like these other people do, did this, and so, do you want to just punish this guy while all this other shady shit is happening and make an example out of him, or do you want to risk trying to find the whole truth and punishing nobody? Right. And that, that really is the way it should have been approached. Yeah. And... They did it wrong. Also, any, <laughs> sorry. Anytime a movie can make an excuse to put more Guy Pierce in it, I think that's a good. <laughs> You're <move>. on board. <laughs> Give me some of those cheekbones, baby. Oh, oh, yeah, that would have been. I mean, there's so many different versions of this movie that would have been more interesting, yeah. or at least less right. convoluted. Mm. But uh, well, this is. We should mention the guy who wrote the screenplay for this wrote Traffic and Syriana. And I haven't seen Traffic in a long time, but Siriana sure as hell is super convoluted and makes no sense <laughs> and is really hard to follow and kind of yes. ends on a note where you're just like, well, all well, right, I, I feel oil that, is bad. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think Traffic does the same thing, but it's like drugs are bad? Tra- traffic Traf- is a bit... Traffic's follow. You can follow traffic. Yeah, traffic. Soderbergh directed traffic. Yeah, and so Soderbergh. Soderbergh doesn't have like the William Friedkin thing where he's like, "This is my point of view, and I want to put it in there." Soderbergh tends to just uh, sacrifice his point of view for the story. Yeah, and so I'm sure. And also, traffic. Every different segment is shot differently mm-hmm. to emphasize its difference, and so he does a lot to make that story as convoluted as it is. Uh, followable and really 
surprisingly mainstream in the way it's approached, whereas Syriana is directed by Stephen Gagan, who wrote Syriana, and ah. so it's he he just basically indulges in his own worst impulses. Yeah. Also, I like to mention that this guy wrote the Alamo, the 2004 oh, Alamo movie, God. and Havoc. The, uh, the, the <laughs> Anne Hathaway really? movie. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Wait, what's Havoc? That's the one, that's, it's only really famous, quote-unquote, because it's Anne Hathaway's, Anne Hathaway's first nude scene is in oh. it, but it's, um, it's like a straight-to-DVD movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. about, Ooh. like, rich white girls who decide to find out what it's like to... Hang on, this guy is like yeah. he's like the king of like false morality. Yeah, <laughs> whatever, like like hollow moralizing. Yeah, geez. Jesus Jeez. Christ. <laughs> well, and uh, I found out that the the person who's credited for writing the story of Rules of Engagement, he is a former Marine, a former lawyer, and the former United States Secretary of the. Navy. God, it makes so, so he, much sense. Yeah, man. it does. He wrote himself as Tommy Lee Jones. He was like, all right. <laughs> I'm Tommy Lee. How would I defend this guy? <laughs> I would win, so. <laughs> I win this case so hard. <laughs> Start from the ending and work my way back. And that's why the movie got better. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so <laughs> I win. <laughs> How do we get there? All right, we gotta see. have a scene where I'm bonding with my dad by fixing a car. That's really important. Yeah. Guys do that. They do that a lot. I forgot that scene was even there. Yeah. It's like last like 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> How could you forget Philip Baker Hall and that beautiful car in that garage? <laughs> Philip Baker Hall, as he said, eternally the oldest man in every movie he's been. <laughs> Could have been 20 years ago. He's still, still the grandpa. oldest man. Oh, man. Oh, and one last, one last thing, and I'm sure I'll get in, in trouble. For this, if anyone ever, if if this po podcast becomes popular, I'll get in trouble. The flag in this movie is the movie treats the flag like the uh, most precious jewel. Well, the best equivalent I can think of is like Sal's Pizzeria in Do the Right Thing. <laughs> when people, when that movie came out, a bunch of very racist people were like, "Those, I can't believe those people destroyed Sal's Pizzeria." It's so horrifying and we have to worry about black people doing this and completely ignoring the the that radio rahim is murdered like because like they're like put a, they put a building it burned down and this movie treats, are way more the, this movie makes that essentially a equivalency with like the flag versus everything else they're like okay yes samuel l jackson did order those people die but did he say that flag I, I I tell testify now. Did he say that flag? I <laughs> I think the record shows that he did. Plus the jurors. Oh, you said the flag. Well, well, that flag got a lot of bullets in it. <laughs> yeah, they're grumble, like, grumble. we don't care how many Marines die. We really need that flag back, even if it's shot to to shreds. We need it back. Well, it's like a stat. It's like For a, posterity. It's, it's like in the military, at least in this world, it's like establishing cred. You know? Yeah. Like, are you a true Marine? Did you really save the flag? But it. I don't know. I I mean, I've never been to war, but <laughs> I can imagine that in wartime, that would be the last thing on your mind. I, I mean, you're 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 getting shot at. You're trying to rescue somebody, trying to get everyone on a helicopter all at the same time, and and then your last thought is, gotta go get that flag. Well, gotta and, go back. And I, I I don't know if anyone who made the movie thought about this, but. Do you think if they didn't, uh, if they didn't try to get that flag, do you think the civilians would still have been killed? 
That's a really good point. Because ah. it drags out them being there. Right. And every moment they're there, the attack's getting worse, and he says, waste the motherfuckers right after that guy gets shot, but that guy wouldn't have gotten shot if they hadn't been dragging yeah. out their time up there. They probably could have hidden inside, had been like, all right, they're gone, you guys start getting inside, we'll keep a few people up top, it could have been, a, it would have been an entirely different situation, but it seems like in the movie, there's no way it could have ever been a situation. They always had to get that flag. Mm -hmm. That flag was prior, was prioritized over American lives and Yemeni lives. And it's, it's crazy. I, I mean, I'm sure there's situations where, yes, you would get the flag. You, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive that's like actual procedure still to this day that you at least lower the flag. But I, I don't know. It seems like a really, if you're going to explicitly put it in a scene that's making that parallel, it like, like not being aware of that parallel and not being able to like criticize or say something intelligent about that parallel is a, problem it's like a really it's a huge failure on the movie's part yeah well and and the flag is really only brought up again to show that samuel jackson is a patriot yep. that's, 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 that's good point carrie <laughs> <laughs> way to go well i guess getting onto a lighter note because i think we've spent 55 minutes <laughs> talking about things that made us mad <laughs> <laughs> More, I think more time than we spent talking about things that made us mad in Butterfly Effect. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But, um, okay, I do want to give, I really want to give a lot of credit to Friedkin's directing. And I did, I talked about it a little bit, but I want to point out that the embassy sequence, which is the, the sequence that leads to all this mess, um, is incredibly well directed. Yeah. And most of the movie yeah. is very, very well directed. But I really want to sing off that scene as, to, as a way of pointing out because... Friedkin isn't like Hitchcock or Wells or Kubrick where his shots are instantly recognizable as great shots. Or, or his shots. Or his shots. He doesn't necessarily put what you would think of as personality into them, but his way of filming is his. I, I mentioned I've mentioned before that in every Friedkin movie, there's a scene where a dead body is implied by flies buzzing. And it's definitely here. It's a very common thing. But a more specific thing I noticed is, well, Friedkin has a documentary background. And so you see that a lot. I didn't his, know that. Yeah. His first, like, he's a Chicago documentary filmmaker originally. And um, what did he make documentaries about? He actually made a documentary about a guy who was wrongfully imprisoned for murder. And I believe it's like one of those thin blue line type of situations. Oh, where he made okay. like an advocacy documentary for him. Cool. And uh, that helped him get that Sonny and Cher movie that he made that made his career. <laughs> uh, but um, in, in stuff like this, he tends to take an approach of, he doesn't, precede the action in any way. He doesn't suggest what's going to happen. He just follows it very closely. Like, if a documentary crew knew which important things were... were where they were going to be, so that you follow naturally, and as soon as it comes up, the camera shifts just a little bit to show it, and then instead of cutting to the next thing, the camera moves again to show the yeah. next Yeah, all of thing. his movies have really nice flow. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and the embassy sequence... Think about how many people are involved in that sequence. Besides the crowd, there's also the snipers. There's other civilians in other places. There's other the battery ram. There's other soldiers. There's all the people working in the embassy. Ben Kingsley. And during that scene, 
That scene. What a whole, stupid role yeah, for that, him. It, well, and it was it, terrible. It, it, yeah, he's just Ben Kingsley. I was trying to defend him watching this movie, being like, maybe he's just better in supporting roles, and he still somehow overacts in the five yeah, minutes. He has. I, <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a movie where I was like, oh, I'm so glad Ben Kingsley was in this. <laughs> so glad Ben Kingsley played the god. <laughs> But anyway, you're saying. Anyway, um, so during that scene, which the whole movie requires us to understand that scene yeah. very intimately, we have yeah. to be familiar with a lot of details. They throw back to it a lot. And not only does it make sense, it makes sense in the moment. It's, the scene it's doesn't very have very lucid. Yeah, it does. It's and it, but at the same time, it's conveying chaos. It mm-hmm. conveys chaos in a lucid way, and you are aware of all the points. And he's doing that in a documentary style. Yeah. So there's no symbolism he's using mm-hmm. to convey his point or artful directing it's just here is what it is and here's the next thing you need to know and here's the next thing you need to know and and that's incredible directing. and that's part of why the ambiguity would have really worked yeah mm-hmm. he his his directing style plays perfectly into the ambiguity and that la- and the back half of the movie where it's the courtroom scene he just is like they're like all right film this guy talking and then film this guy yeah. talking well, and then again, film this guy it, talking he films it like he's in a courtroom making a documentary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, that would be a really boring movie. Yes. <laughs> All right, Teehee. And I, uh, this is just like a, a nonsense thing, but I have to point out that when Tommy Lee Jones is investigating, he goes to the embassy to investigate for Samuel Jackson's defense, he goes into the ambassador's office and there's a picture of Al Gore, his roommate, on the wall. And I just, I, I, that wasn't pointed out in the trivia or anything, so I really wonder if, because it's, in considering the time that it's set, it makes sense. It's not like an unnatural, see... in-jokey type thing, but at the same time, it is, it is like the most literal in-joke if it is an in-joke. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't see a picture of Clinton. Yeah. Anywhere. No, it's weird that the, the vice president in particular. <laughs> yeah. We really like him around here. I bet Tommy called Al and was like, yo, dude, I'm in this movie. We're filming at an embassy. Right. In case anyone listening doesn't know, they were roommates in college. Yeah. Tommy yeah, Jones yeah, and Al like Gore. It, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, just really I weird. love the idea of Tommy and Al talking on the phone like old pals. Tommy. <laughs> And, uh, okay, and the other, the only other thing I can think of to point out from my notes, this last note I have, is, um, Guy Pierce's accent is terrible in this yeah. movie. You know what? I I'm from Brooklyn. It. It's like Brooklyn, Australia. I thought he did, <laughs> I thought he did great. But, <laughs> shut up. You're dazed. His, I think his performance is fine, it's just his accent is bad, on top of his otherwise good performance, and the thing that drives me crazy is... I know you're saying he, he has like a real muscular face and everything, but to me it looks like his muscles are forcing his accent. Like, he's like clenching his face yeah. so much very to strange. make a Brooklyn accent. Yeah. Well, right. that's possible. I mean, because he's Australian. Yeah, it was probably hard. Maybe it's... he had to tighten that jaw a little bit. How often does Guy Pierce actually just speak with his normal accent? Almost never. Yeah. He's like never Christian Bale. Australia. Yeah. He's like Christian so Bale, weird. where Christian Bale is like half American now. Because well, like the Hemsworths. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's so weird. Just like let him be. And like, it's so like with Guy Pierce, it makes sense. He's like always like in these archetypal American roles, right? Yeah. He's in the military in this world. L.A. Confidentially is an L.A. police officer. Yeah. And you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And you know, right. 
Um, but like with the Hemsworths, they're like always like international guy. Or like, Thor. you know, like, yeah, Thor. Thor does have some kind of accent. Some weird, like. But he has like a 15th century accent. Yeah, it's like, it's like his accent is, is like aristocratic. Yeah. Not like tied to a country. It's just like. Yeah. Old timey. Yeah. <laughs> and, and dignified. <laughs> I'll win this hammer. No. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, bad accent. So, I have a note. Um, I have two. One is, I would love to hear your thoughts on a movie saying the title of the movie in the movie. They do. Yeah, Guy Pierce. Because, they yeah, yeah, they say rules of engagement a couple times. Part, yeah. part of the reason is because they talk about the rules of engagement. Right. They actually lay out what the rules of engagement are. And Samuel Jackson has them memorized. So he right, just, he just has that, keeps his eyes locked on which, Guy Pierce. Is that realistic? Would military people have that memorized? Oh, yeah. I'm For sure. sure. I mean, like, 32-year veteran in the military. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, I forgot that he's combat. supposed to be, like, 55 in the movie. <laughs> they make um, Catholic boys memorize every prayer to the Lord. Yeah. So that they can make them <laughs> the They sure make the Marines memorize the rules of engagement. I think what's more noteworthy is that that discussion over the rules of engagement makes no difference on the plot at all. No, It doesn't yeah. change anything. It's just... I think there's, like, symbolic value to it being called that, and then they just have to, like, literalize it. They what? Have to have that what would title have been a better title for this movie? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we could come up with a great one. <laughs> I felt like I think it was Sam and Tom's Terrible like, Adventure. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Sam and Tom. Maybe, like, In the Heat of Battle. <laughs> in the Heat of... Oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought of a few good Yemen. (laughs) 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 That's great. Alright, we we should move on. Okay, so the other thing I really just like in movies when they start the movie with, you know, they're like, oh, this takes place in this year. And it's a short, like, five to ten minute scene and something important happens. And then... After that scene happens, they're like, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later. And it's like, okay, so something in that scene was really important for me to pay attention to and will be flashback to later. Right, law of relevance, yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, if you're going to write a scene like that, try to be a little more subtle or use some, some other device to let the audience know that they should be paying attention. Actually, the the... Movie that I'm thinking of that does a great job at that is Last Boy Scout <laughs> because there's that scene at the beginning where Dame Wayne, Damon Wayans, oh my tongue, uh, he throws that football at that guy in the jacuzzi and yeah. like hits his nose, and then later in the movie he throws the football and hits like the bad guy. No, he hits the president. Oh yeah, <laughs> the president. No, it's the guy yes, running for president. Uh, yeah, and knocks him all the, the way with a sniper's bullet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, like that. I never would have thought that that was an important moment for me to remember yes. that they're gonna do like a callback to. <laughs> but that is a that's great writing. <laughs> that is. I mean, it's just such a stupid. It's cheesy, thing. but yeah. it's good. Yeah. But yeah, it's such a good moment. Like I don't know how they would have done that with this movie. Well, like this in this scene, like it's just like it's more like I feel like it's laying the thematic ground. Right? Mm-hmm. And, like, there's not... There, there's, like, a echoes of it in 
I guess, in just yeah, like prefacing true. Samuel L. Jackson's character and his actions, right? But in The Last Boy Scout, there's, like, an even better opening scene to establish, like, the, the themes <laughs> yeah. of the movie in which, like, <laughs> the football scene in which Billy Banks, like, <laughs> murders, like, other players <laughs> on the field and then kills himself because, like, he's been driven insane by the pressure <laughs> of playing in the NFL. <laughs> like, that is way more to establish the movie than, like, anything else. <laughs> It's brilliant. God, God, I love that movie. It's so (laughs) great. Unheralded classic. (laughs) We're going to give it a comeback. We should should just start repping all of the works of Tony Scott. Oh, yeah. Because he is so underrated. Yes. He was a great director. We just watched Top Gun (laughs) for the first time. time. I had never seen it. Uh, I, I envy you. I don't. I don't know if I want to see it again. <laughs> you must, though. Man, I really wish I remembered it well enough or understood it well enough to like discuss it in relation to rules of engagement. Because I feel like there's some really weird uh, military. Uh, there's a lot of that type of like very, very absentmindedly pro-military stuff in Top Gun, oh, where they yeah. just like ver- they anonymize the villains and but. I, I didn't plan ahead. I didn't realize you were going to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, I, I'm thinking about, this is such a digression, but no, I, uh, I'm i thinking about Top Gun and how, like, subtly gay it is. Oh, so gay. So, so subtly. No, like, not yeah, You can argue, yeah, okay. anyway. Yeah. yeah Subtle so, so gay. And then I'm thinking about how we just watched It, and It has all of those, like, secretly sexual references because in the book i don't know if you know this but in the book in it all of the boys have sex with the little girl to escape the monster they have like a gangbang in a sewer <sighs> yeah As yeah in- and so the movie when you were i guess <laughs> I it's a mini series but the mini series yeah. when you watch it you're like oh, man all of these characters have all had sex together <laughs> <They're all banged. laughs> and we just watched brain damage and that has a lot of sexual Tension in it well, as well. Yeah. Man, lots of... You opened a can of worms. Yeah. <laughs> right such, now. That will never be closed. So to speak. Yeah. <laughs> 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 anyway, I didn't have anywhere to go with that. All right. I'm going to say, it looks like you still have a ton of notes, so I'd say I'd... Pick, pick some important final points. <laughs> yeah, start wrapping up. Well, I'd like to, again, mention that there are a ton of great... Male actors in this movie. <laughs> uh, Blair Underwood is in this movie. Uh, Guy Pierce, uh, Mark Fierstein, who I love. Uh, he I've actually seen most of his filmography, which is really bad because he's only been in like Practical Magic, In Her Shoes, this movie, and then um, oh god, there's more. Oh. He was on Royal Pains on uh, <laughs> USA. <laughs> but he's so sweet. He's just a sweet-looking guy. Um, and also Bruce Greenwood. Um, oh, Bruce Greenwood. Yeah, he's great. Um, so slimy. Defend him to my death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is so slimy. He gets typecast as the slimy oh, guy yeah. a lot. Very often I mean, slimy. And, Except in Star Trek, he's like, extremely wholesome. Isn't he secretly slimy? No, he's like no? completely I mean, like... You're thinking of Peter Weller. Oh yeah, yeah. Peter Weller is secretly right, right, right. slimy. No. Spoilers for Star Trek. <laughs> you haven't seen... Uh, if you haven't seen really. the movie that made half a billion dollars yet. Did it really sorry. make that much money? Probably. I don't know. I'm guessing. I believe it. It made a lot of money. 
You should have just said yes. Yes. <laughs> you can edit this out later. <laughs> well, yeah, and Bruce Greenwood is the slimy husband in Double Jeopardy who collects Kandinsky paintings. And every, like, uh, every Ashley Judd movie requires someone to play this, like, the slimy husband. Yeah. Right? It's Harry Potter Jr. and Bug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it literally, She's... every Ashley Judd movie. Anyway. Actually, yeah. and it's Val Kilmer in I Heat. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh my god, it's yeah. It's everything. You're right. Wow. I never realized that was her typecasting. Oh, yeah. Man. She plays a strong woman who's been, been trapped in an abusive relationship. Well, and she's in Where the Heart Is, and I'm pretty sure in that movie, she, her husband like abandons her. Hey. Isn't yeah. that the movie where she has a baby in a Walmart? Natalie Portman has the baby in a Walmart. Oh, right. She's yeah. like the friend of Natalie Portman? Something, or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Some anyway. Yeah. I'd also like to mention uh, on air, because I already mentioned it to these guys, but this was originally supposed to star Richard Gere and Sylvester Stallone <laughs> as the two main characters. Try to guess which roles they would have played. I'm just imagining Richard Gere from Chicago when he plays the lawyer, <laughs> and like him singing in the courtroom. Like, hey! <laughs> Michael, I wish I could remember the song you sang. I'll I'll refrain from doing my offensive Chicago (laughs) (laughs) Well, and Sylvester Stallone, I'm just imagining him saying C.O.L. Jackson's line. Wait, I can't do a Sylvester Stallone impression. Can you you do a Richard Gere impression? (laughs) I've never heard a Richard Gere. You tried the way harder impersonation. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the Stallone would be... Waste of motherfuckers, but uh, no, that's, that's terrible. Uh, that was alright. Waste of motherfuckers. Way better. That's better. Way better. Yeah. It, that's that's <laughs> Thank good you. Way. Glad I Wade did. Wade nailed it. <laughs> End of scene. I don't know if it would have been a better movie if they'd started it. It would have been a right. way different movie. Yeah. Because Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel L. Jackson are too competent. More than competent actors. Yeah. They're really good actors. And they had good chemistry. They did, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if Richard Gere and Sylvester Stallone would have had good chemistry. They've been too too different. Yeah. Right? Because Tommy Lee Jones is like, he's got got a rugged look, but he's also got a hint of the intellectual. Yeah. You know what I mean? So he can play like military man who's kind of been out of combat for a while. Yeah. You know? And Samuel Jackson is just like pure virile man. Yeah. (laughs) He's just enthusiasm. Yeah. It's just, yeah! (laughs) All the time. But then, like Richard Gere and Sylvester Stallone, Sylvester Stallone could do military man. He would do like weird caricature of military man slash masculinity. And then Richard Gere, 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 it's just like he's never been—he's never been a tough guy, tough or like like dangerous yeah. ever. Yeah, he's a straight rom com guy. Yeah, straight from rom com. <laughs> I think as masculine as he gets is American Gigolo and. <laughs> he's, a, he's a prostitute. <laughs> no. Is he? Yeah. Well, yeah. I have not seen that. I probably will not see it now that I know it's, he's a prostitute. It's from the guy who did Mishima. Oh. So, there you go. Well, maybe. Maybe I'll watch it. <laughs> maybe. We'll see. Next time. Next time. Okay, so another thing that I, I wanted to ask you guys about is what are the comments on masculinity that this movie is trying to make? Because there's that whole scene where Samuel L. Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones Boy. fight with each other. <laughs> and that then, seems hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> really, that and scene then, is wow. the funniest scene in the whole movie. But, and it's like, it's hilarious, but it's also hilarious seemingly in kind of an intentional way. Where they're like just showing 
two men way too old to have this kind of fight having that kind of fight. Well, and, yeah, and they, like, break glass and stuff like <laughs> but that. But they're so sl- they're, like, have, have to catch their breath a bunch. Right, they're old. The like, eh. <laughs> they, yeah, it just... I don't know. I really... That scene was pretty charming to me, honestly. Yeah. But it kind of breaks the tension. But I think with Friedkin, he has... He, he All of his movies are hyper-masculine. Yeah. And to the point where he, I don't think he really has a means of critiquing masculinity because he doesn't think that way. And this movie certainly wasn't written in a way that was critiquing masculinity. No, yeah, that's not. true. And so I think, I think even though you could read, like, a social critique about masculinity out of this movie, for sure. <laughs> Especially in the way, like, like how much they're, like, how a Marine is supposed to behave and the, mm-hmm. the Marine's code and everything. I think it's, like, really hard to say the film had a point of view on that. Yeah. Right. Also, do you... Who is Kim Delaney? Do you I know, know her? Okay. Well, she evidently had a big part in this movie, and it was completely cut out. <laughs> they're like, no, that woman in the movie, we don't really need her. Yeah, Ann Archer is enough. <laughs> yeah. One woman with one line. We'll just have the one woman whose husband is a pussy <laughs> voice for, for the movie. Yeah. I mean, it's statement on masculinity is like the one man who is not like a typical manly man is like a shiftless asshole. Yeah. Right? Yeah, God, now that I'm thinking about it, I wonder how the movie would have played out if the person defending Samuel L. Jackson had been a woman. Yeah. I feel like I mean, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't made, happen. But. You made that point. You made the one of you made the point earlier that uh, guy when Guy Pierce is introduced, he does that whole thing with like I'm going to do. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna crucify this man. We're gonna do this yeah. the right way. And no in, more death in Philadelphia. The lawyer for the bad guys is Mary Steenburgen, a woman oh. who has a moment where she like is like the hardcore prosecutor and is basically trying to prove that this guy dying of AIDS does not deserve help or he's a liar and all this stuff. And there's this moment where she like forces him to reveal his lesions on the stand to like see like see she, uh, you like basically it was like part of her defense. And after she does it, she goes and she's like this job and she like has this little moment of where you have like very tiny moment of humanity where she's like this is awful i can't believe i have to do this but she's still that's otherwise she you see her normally and i think that's probably how they would have played it they probably would have played it same as yeah with uh them at least there's they they should have it's free william friedkin doesn't really know how to feminize women uh yeah that's true <laughs> even ashley judd and bugs yeah. she's like she looks terrible in that movie. I mean, she looks great. <laughs> what about Gina she... Gershwin? Oh, oh man, yeah. Oh. Well, if you haven't seen Killer Joe, everyone, Do you it. should see it. Yeah, because it's a great. See movie. it once and then never see it again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Wade. You got any things? Final things you like to bring up? No, I just like this movie is just like very subtly depressing and disturbing, and just very. It just bends over backwards to give credence to military violence, yeah. which yeah. I find like very disheartening. It leaves a bad taste um, in your mouth. It does, um, and it does so in a way that's like even worse than things like Transformer. Mm, you know yeah. what I mean? All the Transformer yeah. movies are just big military commercials. Oh yeah, right. Or car commercials. But it's like it's like a justification. The Transformers movies are like a justification for the military and military violence, like aesthetically. Right? Like, military is cool. We have cool technology. Like, you'll be a badass if you're in the military, basically, is like mm. the argument. Right? And this movie is like, 
the military is cool because it is like it has a up, code. It has a code that is inviolable, right? Yeah. It's like if you're in the military, you are doing the right thing. You are a man. You who shouldn't has, be questioned. Who has honor and who should not be questioned. Who cannot be questioned for any action they take. Yeah. That's really fucked up. Yeah, yeah. that's scary. Yeah. yeah, I agree. All right. Well, um, I feel like Wade summed it up. Yeah, good. that was a really good good note to go out on. So, okay, so Carrie, uh, as your closing notes, um, what do you think is like the teachable a teachable lesson from this movie, or a reason something you can learn from this movie? Watching it, I I think this movie is worth seeing just for the reason of watching it and deciding for yourself how you feel about these topics because. You know, this is a movie that allows you to explore really how you feel about military violence or even government involvement or even the judicial system. Like, it really kind of, because it is convoluted and, and doesn't really make clear the argument it's trying to make, it allows you to make an argument yourself while you watch it. So I think the lesson is... Make your own arguments. <laughs> <laughs> right, Wade? Uh, the lesson is don't trust protagonists, I think. Ah, um, I think you need, like, you just need to be critical when you're watching movies. Even, like, dumb, big-budget Hollywood yeah. movies like this. And that's, this movie's not dumb, but it's, you know, it's like a typical Hollywood movie yeah. in, in many respects. And I think you, you need to, as an audience member, be wary of the... Because the morality that is embodied in the protagonist. Yeah. What about you, Paolo? I think, I mean, my teachable lesson, really, since you guys covered the two really good points, uh, I'll say this is a really great example of non-auteurist great directing. Mm. And especially because usually when you think, uh, most examples they give you of great directing is a great movie where it has the screenplay and everything is supporting the directing is just the icing on the cake. And so it's really interesting to see a movie where the directing is so solid and smart and actually very skillful while not having anything to support it in a, at a lot of times. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really good piece to watch and appreciate something that would be more abstract and hard to pick out otherwise if you didn't, if you didn't know to look for it. So, yeah, uh, the directing is really noteworthy, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Your your lesson is William Friedkin is a great director. Oh, I was about to say that. Yeah. Right. It's like don't let our like bashing of this movie dissuade you, viewers or listeners rather. Like <laughs> William Friedkin's a really good director and you should definitely check yeah. him out. He tells most very, of his movies. He tells very interesting stories. Oh yeah. Stories yeah. that I don't think anyone else is telling. No. And uh, yeah. he's responsible for the car chase in French connection, uh, which is Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. he he will always have that uh, that little pin on his cap for, but yeah, I love his whole career. We're definitely going to touch on some more of his movies on this podcast. Yeah. So. But uh, yeah, I think that's it. We've gone an almost an hour and a half nice. on this movie. So wow. Nice. All right. Well then, well, I guess we'll wrap it up there. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. I'm Wade. Thank you for listening to Secret Cinema. Uh, see you again soon. The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Carone. All theme songs were performed and recorded by Ricardo Ortiz. 
Any additional music or samples come from the film covered on this week's episode. All logos and artwork created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at vimeo.com slash paolocarone or read more of his ramblings about film at letterbox.com slash paolocarasmus. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. Thanks again for listening.